Stephen Miller is a multimedia artist born and raised in Buffalo, New York. Being an early pioneer for the science art movement, his most recognized works are those of paintings and sculptures of the natural world. One of his latest projects, entitled Health of the Planet, works with Brazilian scientists to showcase the diversity and necessity of the lungs of our planet, the Amazon rainforest. With surfboards depicting diagrams of alligators and stingrays, as well as printed x-rays of sloths and native fruits of the country, the intention of the project is for Brazil to take a closer inspection on their global contribution to the planet. Over the past 30 years, Stephen has presented over 30 solo exhibitions at institutions across the US, China, France, and Germany, continuing these conversations about ourselves, each other, and the planet that connects us all. Steve Miller, welcome to the Creative Process. Thank you. We're in your studio looking at your wonderful art and this newly published X-ray photo invention book. That's the newest. This is two years old. Two years, yes. That's last week. Yes. So, yes, what your relationship with making art for the surf and skate world? So, I think we we just talked about briefly, but I have this idea that Art should be in the world in as many forms and ways as possible. And I love communicating with skate, you know, skate decks. And it it partially started out in Brazil because what I was doing in Brazil is, you know, x-raying Amazon, uh, animals in the Amazon. And I thought, well, there was this idea in the old days that you would go to the Amazon, you'd kill an animal... You'd stuff it, you'd bag it, and then you'd have this, like, trophy, right, of of your kill. And I was thinking, well, I was actually, the alligators that we x-rayed were alive. And I got them from, actually from a zoo in a town called Belém, L-E-B-E-L-E-M, which means Bethlehem in Portuguese, Mm -hmm. Belém. And the alligators are live. I thought like, well, wow, we're not going to kill these alligators to, you know, get our images. And I, and water is a really important concept in Brazil. It's also have thousands of miles of beaches and the surfboard is like this kind of trophy, right? You can have them in the favela, you know, you see them in, I've been in the favela. That's another conversation, which we can get into. And you can have them in the richest person's house, you know? So all of a sudden there's this new warrior trophy. That's the surfboard. And I thought, okay, now I can take this animal, which I don't kill, put it onto a surfboard. And you have this kind of maybe an eco trophy where you don't have to kill the animal and, you know, so now you have this, the idea of the beauty of these animals out into the world. You also see how fragile the world is, the beauty, you know, like that we're killing all these animals in order for their skins or, you know, to get rid of forests, to have logging and or to grow soybeans or to graze cattle, which are, you know, not, not exactly environmentally friendly. And I thought, okay, so I can make this new object that brings us a part of the conversation. Mm. So the conversation, so how do you get that conversation out there? If the conversation is just in an art gallery, you know, you do a show in an art gallery and 300 people see it, you know, Mm. if you're lucky. And if you don't get a review, you know, it's like no one even knows it happened. So I was thinking, okay, clothing, right? Mm. So I started making clothing for a Brazilian company, actually. (laughs) And I thought, like, wow, these things would be... And there was a company who was very interested in the idea of sustainable manufacture. And it's a company called Osklin. O-S-K-L-Y-N. O-S-K-L-E-N, sorry. So that's the... You know, that's where I started, right? And so these are... You know, so there's this conversation about resources. And that conversation can take place... In a store, it can take place on a beach with your surfboard. It can take place, you know, on a skateboard. So this this book is about that conversation, right? Mm-hmm. So the first book was the actual artwork that was made. And then I realized that the conversation was much larger than art. This is my studio assistant in Osaka, Japan, skating these boards. So it's, it's a global conversation. And I think that's that's the part that interests me. So this book takes place in Rio, New York City, Osaka, Japan, Montauk. Now this is in the East End. 
and that we're all a part of uh, you know how these resources are used and where they go. This is it, Bloomingdale. So this was actually in the windows of Bloomingdale's in New York City, right? Yeah. I did for three years. I did windows, okay. the whole block of Third Avenue, whole block of Lexington Avenue. And so it's like, yeah, they're, they're, they're getting their fashion stuff, but I'm also getting my stuff out there, yeah. you know. And so it's just I love the idea that the audience can be expansive. Yeah. And I think that's so this is all my clothing and uh, recycle. In this mm-hmm. case, it's recycle art. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was really to think that we could all be a part of the conversation. And it's not a high-low because what was interesting about the conversation that takes place is um, going to go to the... Well, okay, so this is what's in the studio right now, right? Yes, this is describe this. a three-toed sloth. Okay. And this is kind of the emblem of the problem. And so this is called sloth pieta, right? Oh, so, I see. Yes, right, mother and child, mm-hmm. Brazilian... Brazil is, happens to be a Catholic country, so yeah. the idea of the pieta is resonant in terms of their culture. And in this case, shot it through the heart, and then, you know, laminated it. This is shot through the hard on glass. Yeah. So shot, shot the glass image, which is there. Mm-hmm. And, and we should explain just here for those who don't know your x-ray process. So, so this is actually done in Brazil, right? Mm-hmm. All of these x-rays are done in Brazil because mm-hmm. you have to find the animals. The animals are in the Amazon. And then you have to find a place that will actually bring in live animals and x-ray them. Mm-hmm. And I... After a three-year search, I found a radiologist named, oh my God, (laughs) I'm having brain dead. He's in the back of the book, who really helped do all the x-rays. We should, like, give him credit, but let's see if we can... Sometimes uh, those names are difficult to remember. Oh, you know what? He's in the acknowledgments. He's in the prelude, so let's see who did it. Let's see, that's Michael's essay. And where's my essay? And Michael is someone you collaborate with, or who is it? Uh, Michael Tolkien um, is... So So in, in each of the books, somebody really important to my life and the discussion. So he did one of the first skateboarding movies starting Christian oh. Slater ages ago. This yeah. is kind of a cult classic called Gleaming the Cube. Okay. And it's about these skaters that would... Well, it's the story is in the forward, but it's it's about immigration. It's about people coming to America and trying to establish themselves. And some kids were doing it through skating. And what they would do is go to swimming pools that were empty, right? Mm-hmm. And then start skating in those swimming pools. Mm-hmm. And then it became into a like a you know kind of a chase scene and stuff in the movie. But the idea about using Michael as a writer is he's, he's a really great author. He's a well done film director, and and he's. And he brings kind of a, a public story mm-hmm. to the conversation. So I think it's really important to get the conversation about something that we all participate in, not an art world conversation about aesthetics. In the first book, Radiographic, so this guy, Carl Safina, this author, and the essays are only like three or four pages. I, mm-hmm. I have a mandatory, because the attention span is so short with people, you know, it's mm-hmm. like three pages only. And so Carl wrote something about how everything is all interconnected. I didn't say write about my work. I said, do whatever you want. That's a creative response. But basically his response was like how it's all connected. Mm -hmm. Like, so you can't really isolate. That's, that's the thing about art galleries. I love art. I love art galleries. Mm -hmm. I want to show in museums and galleries and I'm fortunate. And you have. Yeah. And I'm fortunate to do that, Mm -hmm. but I don't. I think it's, you know, Matisse has this quote, which I'm sure I'm going to misrepresent, but basically it was audience completes the work. So I I think audience is a huge responsibility. In my work, there's, of course, I'm interested in, you know, aesthetic concepts and aesthetic creation, but that's not separate anymore Mm -hmm. from the conversation about data, from the conversation about the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. From my viewpoint, the best art in art history is made from the language of the time in which it was made. So, for example, you know, one of the reasons Giotto is so great is because after the Byzantine moment, right, of Cimabue and Duccio and people like that, and you have this sort of flat kind of world, right, flat world that's going back in space like mm-hmm. like cards or collage on top of each other. That's it. So when he started to introduce one-point perspective, 
that came across as like people thought that was actually real, right? So they actually thought when they saw those first early Jado paintings, they thought they were real. So, you know, the, the vision of the world was using perspective created a new reality. Mm-hmm. And then there was a whole new sense of realism based on two-point perspective, right? So all of a sudden, a mathematical scientific achievement, which mm-hmm. is perspective, changes the whole idea of what art is about. And in the same way, photography did the same thing. So then art was about this real representation of reality, right? And and then there are different versions of it because you look at someone like, oh, I don't know, I'm thinking of anger, right? Yeah. That's like, you know, in, in its day, that was a kind of hyper-realism. Yes. You know, and then you look at other artists like Murillo, someone like that, mm-hmm. with, you know, more gritty, right? Mm-hmm. And like getting away from the idealized world and you're getting down to a more like, oh, well, people have dirt on their faces. Manet was like that, like yeah. a Christ that looks like a real person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, representation went through these changes and then you have something like computers, right? So mm-hmm. photography allowed for the invention of abstraction because once it took over the idea. So there are always different language systems that take over the notion of communication. And we have a new language system and it's the language system of information Mm -hmm. technology and how I got into using the x-rays in my work was I was in Paris Mm -hmm. and I was doing a show of portraits Mm -hmm. with Benamo at that gallery I think it was called I don't know if it was he started out at Gallery du Genie but I think Mm -hmm. the second gallery was maybe Albert Benamo I don't know we'll look at the catalog but anyway Fantin Latour did that series of portraits, right? You know, that group portrait of, like, all the artists. And and then there was this notion, and then the critics, you know, they were all Mm -hmm. together in in a portrait, and, you know, Van Gogh did Dr. Gachet. Yes. So I thought, like, oh, this would be, you know, Picasso did Kahnweiler, right? And so I thought it would be really interesting to take technology and reinvent the notion of portraiture. Because portraiture then now is about identification, right? So now you're using medical records, forensic records, you're using DNA, you're using blood samples to figure out, you know, like what identifies a human being. So then I did a show in Paris that included electron microscopes, x-rays, sonograms, just all these different ways that you could reinvent the portrait. And, you know, the Renaissance notion of portraiture was if you look through the eyes, right, if you got the eyes right, you could look into the soul, right, of the person depicted. And now we can literally look inside. So with information technology and science, we have this new idea about what the person is, right? So instead of just the image and the exterior, it's now a combination of all this information. It's genetics. It's your family history that you're looking up. You send your blood in or, in, or a hair sample, and now you have this idea of who you are, right? Mm-hmm. Who you are is now linked to a series of generations. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, it's just evolving, the, the notion of identity. So, so we have this new language system is technology and so it made it was really clear to me that that is the language that I needed to make art out of because I saw other generations making art out of the language of their time and the language of our time is obviously a topic of technology that takes me like to CERN right so so we were talking about information technology and Google search and all the ways that you can get information but then there's this new shift that took place and the new paradigm shift is it's beyond technology, beyond information, or a new version of that that's more specific that's called data, data analytics. And we know the importance of that through Edward Snowden, right? Google's tracking every search we ever do. They have all your emails. The phone is tracking where you are located. So now we're being observed through the lens of data, even when we know we aren't. And then we're making decisions based on the data information that we get. Maybe not you and specifically, but some people see the value of a certain art at a certain price. Oh, it must be valuable if it's that much money. Mm-hmm. And people are looking at artists and and they're they're looking at their Instagram feed and the more followers you have means you're in, you know, it may not be true, mm-hmm. but there's an aesthetic value and importance that we assign to someone that has a certain number of followers that they're called influencers. Yeah. Right. So it's like all of a sudden now we have a data point, mm-hmm. number of followers, 
price of a painting. And that's, of course it would, but that's influencing how we value things, how we look at it aesthetically. And maybe not everyone, maybe not you and me in this conversation, but as a general cultural conversation, data is something that's influencing the way we think. They, it's influencing the way we have relationships with, let's say, online dating or something like that. So, you know, there's, there's something about that that made me want to deal with that as a, you know, as a language. So I knew that the art that I made had to be made out of the language of our time. Yes, and it's interesting you mentioned time because I was wondering how one thing that has changed also in our relationship to what we call it the information age or our relationship to data is our also our relationship to time. Yeah. Uh, and how, and in some ways, as I look at your very forward looking art, or I'd say looking into our present moment, but as I look at the x ray artworks, is that what you call them, x ray artworks? Yeah. yeah. I, I also feel in a way they feel timeless. You know, it doesn't feel like, yes, it is a moment it's captured, but it feels like, I say it sounds spiritual, but it, as you look in, you think of the soul or the spirit or the essence of something, something beyond. So that's an interesting point because you talk about data and the representation of time. So that painting on the wall right there, I think I've got it in this book somewhere. I don't even know the name of it, but you see in the lower part of the painting, you see that green grid? Yes. So that green grid... That's a satellite view of clearing in the Amazon. And how it's changed. Right. Yeah. So the so you see how it shifts up? You know, there's a hard line. I moved it north. Yeah. That's the same. Oh, here it is. Okay. Right. So whatever it's called, forces at play. Right. Okay. Good name. So this is the 1986. Right. Now, you can see these same lines. There's this road. That's that road there. This is 10 years later. Right. So that's data uh -huh. telling us how we've cleared the Amazon over a period of 10 years. It happens to play beautifully with the notions of modernist geometric abstraction, you know, but at the same time, this geometric abstraction is loaded with information about what's going on in the culture right now, what's yeah. going on globally. And if you could describe it towards the edges of the painting. Yeah, so, like the so, these, so the there's x-rays of two Amazons, a python and an alligator in mm -hmm. two different corners of the painting, and then the data point is laid on. So basically, it's like the sloth pieta. These animals are being, you know, sacrificed for this moment, right, for this land clearing. Mm -hmm. So we're losing this as we move from that to that. So as we move 10 years in time, we're having less of the animals, more of the land clearing, more pollution. And so I thought that the artwork could could really kind of be a part of that dialogue, you know, like yeah. global forces at play. And then since we're sitting next to that one, I think it's in the book. I'm pretty sure it is, but let's see if Maybe not. Is that another clearing? Or yeah, so, so what's interesting is that that center blue line that goes through the center, you know, almost the center of the painting diagonally, that is a, a road that's been cut in, you know, a scene from a satellite. And then there's like ribs that go off the road. And those ribs are actually other roads that go in where they clear more land. So this pattern is called a fishbone pattern, right? Yeah. And it looks like the x-rays of the piranhas, yeah. you know, as you get closer. That's also interesting how we we think that things that aren't related, they have a similar pattern in their construction, and that's a, a, a large scale, the clearing, and it has a, a fishbone pattern yeah. inside so it. Yeah, so there's, right, there's a fishbone, right? Yes. That's why they call that pattern yeah. fishbone. So, you know, there's all these equivalencies that are kind of interesting about, you know, time, the, the clearing, and, and how data is giving us information about our environment. So I think that that's you know, an important concept in terms of being part of a larger cultural dialogue. And I think, for me, being in, in that conversation, and you know, this next book, the new one, Surfskate, some of it takes place in the favela of Rio. And so what's happening is you're clearing the land, right? to get an image that looks like this, which mm -hmm. was like, this is an image of, of a crazy plate of spaghetti, which is actually an image of power lines and extension cords and randomly stolen power off the power grid, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, it's a chaotic situation. But whether, you know, we're all involved in the conversation, whether you're the poorest person tapping illegally an electrical source in the favela or whether you're buying a luxury product like a Chanel handbag, which I've x-rayed. You know, we're all connected and we're all a part of this. And I think that's something that's really important to me. And that's why I like being on a T-shirt, being on a coffee mug. You know, this is kind of something interesting. So I'm doing this cashmere line, right? Mm -hmm. So this, there's two different kinds, but this is stuff from, from the Large Hadron Collider, right? Oh, I see, yes. We're talking about equation to the... Part of the matter. So you went to CERN and you conducted interviews, and how did that change your perception of what was going on at CERN and their creativity? Well, I mean, what, I mean, this is the, CERN was kind of an aha moment for me because I was always, I had worked it with another particle accelerator, Brookhaven, gone there, and I did a whole show of, of work about quark gluon plasma. So I took these Chinese pots that are, some of these are like 4,000 BC. And so that's the start of civilization making stuff, right? Making things, making matter. But right now, we have the ability to understand what the state of matter was at Big Bang, which was quark, gluon, plasma, right? That's the state of matter at Big Bang. And so we have like this timeline between human activity that maybe started 10,000 years ago in terms of making things and or maybe 10,000 BC actually. But the you know earliest Neolithic civilizations in China, it's about 5,000 BC. So Neolithic culture was making pottery. But now we're so far along that timeline that we can actually visualize the state of matter, you know, which was a plasma state. So we've gone from plasma state to this, like, making things. So that's sort of how I started to integrate the idea of physics and technology into one body of work, which was called Neolithic Quark. But you're, when you start going on that road of, of scientific advancement, you can't stop, you know. So the next thing was the Higgs boson. And I thought, like, well, I have to figure out what this is, what this means. So we were talking about the beauty of mathematics. So the beauty of E equals MC square is the simplicity of it and the fact that Einstein understood there was an, equ an equation, an equivalency between energy and matter. So matter contains energy. So... There's, you know, if you could release all the energy in, in a, a baseball, you could make an atomic bomb, right? There's that much because that matter is times the speed of light squared. So a very small piece of matter has an incredible amount of energy. And that's what he figured out. So everyone's looking for like an equation that will unify, you know, cosmic experience. And so it, it and Einstein actually didn't believe in quantum theory. But in, in CERN, what they're looking for is something called the standard model. And the standard model is a series of equations that tell you what all the particles are in the universe and putting them together in one place. And what they understood was there had to be a unifying particle that, that put together. I don't even know why I'm talking about this. I'm, off, I'm way off the subject. No, I'm very fascinated <laughs> in this because it obviously animates you. So well, it's, it's, he put together, you know, they tried to figure out, was there something that unified magnetism, mm -hmm. electromagnetism, with radiation, which is the degradation of the beta particle, right? So there's four forces in the universe. Gravity, the strong force, which is quarks and gluons, the weak force, which is radiation and electromagnetism. But what I understood when I went to CERN was is that, that they're colliding particles, right, to figure out if there's this other particle called the Higgs boson that unified. There must be something that explained for mass. That's what the Higgs boson is about. It's a particle that, it, that in relationship to, it, it gives other particles mass. And so you're just... You're, you're forced to go down that road if you're curious to figure out what the next thing is. And I think that the next thing I'm thinking about in terms of data, so there's, there's a relationship between the mathematics at CERN and this, this energy grid that's uh, in the favela. To the right, favela, yeah. So at CERN, you have these incredible power grids to power up these protons to collide them. Mm -hmm. And it's a conversation about energy. So anyway, that's that's the uh, you know the conversation is really about what's the interconnect 
connectivity. So what actually what Robert is doing, he's making these carpets, the artist carpets. And so mm-hmm. I was given the opportunity to make one as well. Mm-hmm. So we're making one now. And, and the carpet is a version of a chalkboard at CERN. So that's the carpet in production, oh. right? And that, and that was directly drawn. We're looking at, you know, beautiful clear lines in orange, white, kind of strong pink and pinks and blues. And that was directly on a uh, chalkboard at CERN? Yeah. Or do you have yeah. to move well, it around I mean, to make know, it artistic? I, I, I made some aesthetic decisions. But, but basically, it's the idea that you can have a decorative object that's a carpet, let's say, Mm -hmm. just like you can have a T-shirt and it can bring you into this larger conversation. I mean, there's that famous painting by Gauguin, Who Are We? Oh, where we are, yeah. Right. Where we are, where we're going. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where do we come from? Where do we come from? And, And, you know, that doesn't change, you know. So these new technology developments ask us these same questions over and Mm -hmm. over again. Mm -hmm. We just get the different layers and different lenses on how to look at it. So, you know, the stuff I'm doing now is really just putting together this conversation. So that painting right there is the wires in the favela. Yeah, with, I guess there's also some palm... Yeah. So yeah, that's what's being taken away. That's like another. It's a. It's another version of that painting we talked about with the animals, right? Yes. The animals are going away, and the palms are disappearing in the background to get those wires. Trees or plants to be replaced by other electric yeah. plants. Yeah. Yeah. So no, it's it's fascinating. And you said the correspondences and patterns. And as I, if we go back again to, I find that really fascinating. How you were inspired by those equations at CERN. I mean, I'm sure you had many conversations. As you says, it takes a mathematician to, to understand the beauty of certain complex equations. But it's an aesthetic experience. Yeah, you, it yeah. would be laughable. Well, what's interesting is I went, you know, I teach at the School of Visual Arts, and we had a, a conversation about aesthetics. And, and one of the artists who was asking the author of this book, a guy named Arthur Miller, was saying that, you know, math was not aesthetic, Oh. And, you know, you, you, know, you talk to a mathematician mm-hmm. and it's very much about aesthetic, yes. you know, like uh, something that's very succinct mm-hmm. that can, can embrace a totality of knowledge. Mm-hmm. That is an aesthetic experience. Right, mm. like Einstein's equation or the standard model, you know. When, and they play with it like jazz too, as I understand. Well, they, you I know, mean, they, the way they see it, like an explosion yeah. in their mind. So the part of CERN that I visited and spent time with is called the theory group. Mm-hmm. The theory group has nothing to do with practical physics. Mm-hmm. Well, it has something to do with practical physics, but one of the things they're looking for is string theory, mm-hmm. supersymmetry. Mm-hmm. Supersymmetry is that for every particle. In the standard model, there's an opposite particle, mm-hmm. so that there's a symmetrical universe, and for every for all matter, there's antimatter. Right? None of this stuff they've quite you know figured out at all. It's theoretical, and it doesn't have a lot to do with the actual collisions that they're doing, you know, in the accelerator. But but the one of the jokes was the idea is to get make the craziest prediction possible and be the first person to make it. And then you'll win the Nobel if it comes true, uh-huh. right? So they're sitting around in this separate area of CERN coming up with, you know, wild ideas and possible theories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they're the first person to make it up, it happens mm-hmm. to come true, then they'll win the Nobel. So that's mm-hmm. kind of like the joke about theory. But there's a playful sense of mathematics, and there's also an ecstatic experience, especially for mathematics. But as an artist, I... Without really knowing the math that well, I can't claim to think that it's that I would understand the aesthetics and beauty of it. Mm-hmm. But, but I we think we can understand through perspective. Yes, we can exactly, those laws. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So we get that someone that has incredible knowledge about mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. So aesthetics is a very interesting idea because mm-hmm. data is influencing, you know, the aesthetics of mathematics, right? And we asked earlier, how does data influence? visual aesthetics and can something that we think is so pure and maybe intuitive although aesthetics can be classical mm-hmm. or romantic right yeah. so it can be structural mm-hmm. or it can be less structural you know based more on intuition so already we've got this discourse between structure and non-structure well is that structure 
you know, related more to information? Is that structure more related to data? And now we have data influencing our aesthetic thoughts and ideas. Mm -hmm. So I think that we're in a culture now where everything is permeating everything else. And that for me, art is a representation of that experience. And it's connected to the world in as many ways as possible. Now, with the rise of the art fair, Mm -hmm. art is very much connected to this notion of commerce, right? Yeah. Well, it has been for a while. Right. It seems more. So I don't know if you've ever read that book by uh, Baudrillard called The Conspiracy of Art. Okay, yes, I'm so so what so what Baudrillard is saying well it's very interesting. So one of his first books in the Mirror of Production, mm-hmm. right, he says the reason why Marxism failed mm-hmm. is because Marxism used the language of capitalism to describe themselves. Oh, so yeah, they So if, if the dog overlord, if you're using the language system of the dog overlord, mm-hmm. you know, the capitalists, and that's the language you're using to say who you are, you've you've already like lost the battle. Mm-hmm. And then the conspiracy of art, you know, what Baudrillard is saying is that there's a kind of uh, aesthetic language of design and the world that we live in and maybe the art fair and and he's saying that the aesthetics of good design at I don't know Starbucks or Target or you know any of these places that we all permeate you know sort of good looking any nice hotel lobby that you go into has a, a certain kind of aesthetic criteria and a and a kind of niceness to it and he's saying that art is being made in the language of that same aesthetic criteria. And art that's made in that language system is null and void because the reason that art has its power is that it understands the symbolic value of what it is. Mm-hmm. And art that, it, that, that, that traffics in the common aesthetic vocabulary becomes null and void because it can't sit outside itself and be symbolic. So how do you bring back the symbolic nature of art? And I'm not saying that I can or I know anything about it, but I know that it has to be a larger conversation. So I hate to break up this emphatic conversation about death and commerce, but I felt that it was time to introduce myself to the fellow listeners of this podcast. My name is Wills. I'm 22 years old and a recent graduate of Fordham University, studying communications and culture more specifically. I ended up majoring in communications really because it seemed like the most universal major and tool to create the kind of path and career that I see for myself. And so I've been working with the creative process as a producer, but as time goes on, I would definitely love to be able to co-anchor and conduct interviews on my own. Um, So later on in the conversation, you'll be hearing Stephen discuss how he uses the role of commerce to spread his art, um, whether by putting it on objects like surfboards and t-shirts or mugs more items that move organically within our own lives rather than a stagnant art piece in a museum per se in order to keep these larger cultural conversations moving and using clothing as a means of activism reminds me of the time that just last year actually when i and millions of other people i'm sure um, during this pandemonium if you will were tie-dyeing clothing as a kind of quarantine hobby, you know, because I know we were past the Tiger King phase and the banana bread making phase of quarantine, and we were in the midst of the uprisings against police violence and the killing of black bodies last summer. Um, I was experimenting with designs that I hadn't tried before, and I wanted to go a little more advanced and try doing a heart shape. And so from the center outward of the shirt, I had colored the heart black and then pink and then yellow, and then green and blue. And after I washed it and dried it, I was kind of looking at it thinking, why not make multiple shirts and even donate the proceeds to a charity or something similar? Because it was very, you know, matter of fact that I had dyed the center heart black, but after looking at it a bit more, I kind of felt that it was a way that I could extend my heart out to those on the front lines of the protests and in the streets. And I think that the design was simple enough that multiple meanings could be attached to the shirt. Like, if you wanted to 
buy it just because you thought it was a cute shirt, you could get one if you wanted the shirt because you felt that it was a way to express your own empathy, um, you could also get one. And so I had raised about $350 and given all of the proceeds to the Okra Project, um, which is a mutual aid collective that provides home-cooked meals and resources for Black transgender people experiencing homelessness and those who need the resources the most. Um, and it was really heartwarming to see people respond to it so well. And I had advertised it over my Instagram feed. And because I feel like I had been seeing a lot of people and, you know, many other people um, linking their donation pages on the Instagram stories. And after a while, I think many of us kind of sit and wonder, like, you know, what can I do beyond posting about these things on social media and protesting in the streets? Like, what more is possible? And I kind of think that I answered my own question this time around. It was the first time I had made and sold a tangible product, but having this added layer of potential meaning um, to me made it a lot more special. And I kind of realized that you don't need to be within a network of internet savvy people in order to spread a message about something that you care about. And, you know, having people compliment your shirt, asking who made it, uh, the reason for making multiple, and then proceeding to ask like what the charity is about and what is their stance. Um, all of those kind of questions showed me the power that really any ordinary person can have and be able to kind of facilitate these larger nationwide, worldwide conversations, even within your own community that have been uh, overlooked for so long. But either way, uh, I think I've talked enough myself, so let's get back into the interview. I'm thinking of cave paintings right now. I'm thinking about things that were created. I'm looking at your own work. I don't mean to cut in. Yeah. But it's, it's something that, yeah, we all think about because uh, even though commerce has been part of the art system going back to, you know, great collectors like the Medici's and, you know, but there was art that was created or the art that children make before right. our relationship to money. Right. Mm-hmm. So and I what, see that. So like what, that. I mean, the reason why I go back to the book, The Mirror of Production, he was talking about in primitive, well, I mean, cultures before ours, you know, they took the most beautiful person Mm -hmm. and young, you know, usually young maiden, they threw her in the cenote and they killed her. And they made a sacrifice of that young woman in order to have a better harvest. Mm -hmm. You know, they made their sacrifice to the gods. Mm -hmm. Everybody that witnessed that event understood the symbolic nature of that event. In that symbolism lies the power of the gesture. You know, you don't have to murder someone in order to have a powerful gesture. But in those cultures, it's very clear the symbolization, the symbolism, and the power of that gesture. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how do you restore the power and the symbolic nature of art? Because when it traffics only as commerce and as objecthood, then it's, you know, it's like what Marxism says: everything will be reified, right? All relationships will be reified if all relationships are turned into. A dollar value, then you know you lose the symbolic meaning of of the art, and that's something that is harder to get that voice to be heard now in this world of data and commerce. At the same time, it's the language system in order to get the message out. So for me, commerce is one of the tools that's there, and it's a it's a possibility to get more people involved in the dialogue. So. You can have a scarf, you can have a t-shirt, you can have, you know, all these different ways. But these are also, it involves movement. That's interesting. There's two things I'd like to talk about because it's very interesting. I don't want us to lose track of that in terms of death, in this theme of death in your own work. Yeah, well, that's definitely... Uh, And, but then, which is interesting is that you're not killing the animals. But then I don't want to forget. (laughs) Okay, so that, that painting that you're looking at right now, I think it's called School of the Abyss. And it's in this book somewhere. It's in actually, it's the one painting that's in both books because well, there's another version of it. But basically, yeah, I mean, that is actually me. 
That's an x-ray of me, and you can see in the x-ray of my mouth three dental implants, Mm -hmm. right? So that's your identity. Yeah, yeah. so there's this idea of this forensic identity. So Mm -hmm. if someone wants to ask whether that's me or not, you know, there's no question that that's me. And, you know, I'm swimming with the fishes, and there's less blue water and more black, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, there's more darkness coming in, Mm -hmm. but... And you're, uh, to describe it, you're grabbing hold of a, a larger fish. Yeah, a bigger fish. Yeah. It was so big that we couldn't x-ray it, so we put it into, I went into an MRI machine mm-hmm. and did a CT 3D uh, modeling. Yeah. But, you know, the idea of, you're talking about movement, so, I mean, the reason the surfboard is there is because there's this movement of a surfboard through the wave, right? Yeah. And, and it's moving organically with nature, and that's just something that I wanted to reinforce by including that object Mm -hmm. and then also making it more than just the proscenium like the us them perspective Mm -hmm. which is western civilization and kind of play with that notion that it's more than you know that this comes into our physical reality Mm -hmm. which is another kind of object which is surfboard i mean paintings are considered objects but it's just keeping this dialogue going in a very Mm -hmm. fluid way so it doesn't get choked up it can move into lots of different directions well i think it's very beautiful because you've put your your artworks uh onto um, these works of art that we can live with i see you're wearing a t-shirt now again with one of these themes that you've i don't know what kind of fish that is that's a piranha piranha okay so you're wearing a piranha so it's very interesting because you give us these everyday moments of meditation or these beautiful scarves that allow us to think about it or or the or the carpets or the rugs and we get to move with the art and i think that's yeah as you rightly identify it is something that is missing from much of the museum gallery space art. Well, it gets, it gets blocked. It's a great place mm-hmm. to have art. I mean, that's a, a really worthwhile experience. It's one of the best experiences I can think of. Yes. But um, Sometimes it doesn't leave. Yeah. yeah, so it's like, so Derrida gave this lecture that I heard at Columbia, mm-hmm. and the lecture was called Universities are the Businessmen of Knowledge. Mm-hmm. And what he was trying to say is that you know, it was at Columbia, I think he gave this, is that universities train everybody to be businessmen and because, or business people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason why is because they have to support themselves. And if these business people go out into the world and make money, they can then take some of the money they've made and support the institution. So there's kind of an efficiency to learning. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of philosophy is it's so hard to understand the language is, there can be three or four meanings to the way a word is used. And in that imprecision and in that fluidity, Derrida's contention was knowledge stays alive. So knowledge stays alive by, in my opinion, I agree with Derrida, I agree with Baudrillard, I agree with Foucault. So Foucault is saying, well, he's saying two things. In the archaeology of knowledge, he talks about the epistemological breaks right, that causes change in consciousness. And that's what I lectured on at CERN, how scientific developments change the way we think. And we gave examples of relationships and things like that. Now I'm completely lost about why I'm talking about this. Oh, I know. the business of education. So, you know, the idea about not being just in the museum, and the museum is fabulous, but if you're just only locked in that conversation, then you're Prevent, you know, by staying loose and fluid and being more confusing, you're actually keeping the dialogue alive. By, by keeping the dialogue like, boom, it's in this box. This is what it's about. It's about aesthetics. You know, that's why I had Carl write in my book. He wrote about conservation and biology mm-hmm. and, and, and dynamic systems that are in relationship to each other. Mm-hmm. And that's how, in my opinion, things stay alive. So it's the benefit of having this conversation in many different areas. that Because what it's about, it's not about whether I'm a good artist or a bad artist. It's about that we are all in this together. We're in a very complicated time. And how can you visualize what the conversation is about. So the conversation, it's a scarf, but it's about particle physics Mm -hmm. and the complicated age of technology that we live in and the knowledge that it brings. It's also we live in an age of environmental crisis when we're on the verge of destruction and the sixth extinction, as Elizabeth Colbert says in her book. So that's, that's what is important right now is understanding. And then maybe by being aware of it all, you know, 
you'll start to have better manufactured. Like, so my fashion line is called Health of the Planet. Mm -hmm. So we do our best to manufacture in the U.S. and Canada. I mean, I do it because it's the best way to observe what the labor practices are. And whether you agree or not, one could argue that we have, you know, more laws protecting workers than, let's say, China or, Mm -hmm. you know, or Pakistan. So I want to manufacture in the U.S. and Canada. Whenever I can, I want to have organic cotton. So it's you make a commitment as being a part of this dialogue to like up the game a little bit more mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, maybe if you're just in the museum having an aesthetic conversation. I mean, there's lots of work that's political now that gets into museums. But, you know, the idea is that this conversation can involve anybody. and It's not just about aesthetics. And aesthetics is the tool to draw everybody into the conversation. Yes, it's and for us to visualize because these are quite complex things and sometimes we just don't know how to contextualize it. No, I, I agree with you. I, I've always believed it's not just, I mean, art for art's sake, but it's not just enough. This is part of the, the aims of this creative process, just not just to have knowledge, which is just like a, a memorization. It's like, what do you do with it? You have to, how, who are you influencing? How are you helping in our own small way to, to make our experiences or make our planet a better place. I mean, this this second book, mm-hmm. Surf Skate, was... Yeah, I am interested in surfing and skating. Yeah. But it's really about, like, in expanding the audience. Yes. You know, radiographic, the first book, that's really more about actual, typical, you know, art objects. They do mm-hmm. represent the notions that I'm talking about and that these are all x-rays of Amazon plants that you're looking mm-hmm. now. And those are the plants that have been cleared, mm-hmm. you know, that are, like, disappearing. Have some of the things that you've x-rayed in the past, are they now, like, uh, is it possible to, to find them? Or are there, I mean... Nothing's disappeared yet, but yeah. there's theories that we're going to lose 90% of the bird population by the end of the century. Mm. You know, yeah, they eat immense amounts of bugs and pests, and they they keep everything in check, right? Like, yeah. like they keep the bug population from destroying the forest. Well, what's happening now is that we have longer summers in the north, and we have less cold winters. So the bugs are just eating the forest, right? So it's that's why this interconnectivity in this conversation is so important. But so the book first book was more about the environmental conversation and then the second book was like getting that out in a more popular format so it could be more accessible so oh yeah surfboards are cool but whoa what's on this surfboard it's it's piranhas it's plants well why are they on that surfboard Mm -hmm. so do you start asking questions about objects and their use and you know where are we from what the hell are we doing and what's going to happen maybe those are the three new questions replacing the questions of Gauguin and because of your deep fascination with science or the interplay between science and art do you sometimes wish you had gone on a more strictly scientific path you know it's interesting because I was talking to Robert who makes the rugs Robert Naffo who's here today mm-hmm. and you know, I, I also, and we're not going to talk about it too much, but I run a software company. And so so a lot of people I know, they do their, like, they go to Wall Street and they make a lot of money and they, they always want to make art. And they go, now I'm going to, like, I'm done and now I can make art full time because I made all this money. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's just the opposite path, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I made the commitment to make art. It was always my number one. I don't even think, I think the software, because it's, it's a, operating system for art galleries. I mm-hmm. actually think it makes it easier for the galleries to sell art and artists sell more art and mm-hmm. helps the artists it survive. It facilitates Yeah, things, right. Yeah. It facilitates the the idea that um, art is something that needs to be in the culture and there has to be a certain kind of process in which people buy and sell it. And if you can help mm-hmm. that process out a little bit, maybe it'll you know, help more artists. So. And it also humanizes the process, uh, oddly. Yeah, the I don't think I, I should get any medal for designing <laughs> the software, but the software came out of a fascination with CERN, understanding that data was important, mm-hmm. and understanding that data points can be useful to find information in this case, you know, mm-hmm. collecting the, connecting the galleries with their clients in a better way. And yeah, I went the an path artist. from aesthetics to businessmen, mm-hmm. or, you know, if that's the word, aesthetics, mm-hmm. To scientists, but in the end, mm-hmm. you know, 
I'm an image maker, and I'm an image maker that wants to have content in the image that connects that stuff to the audience that Matisse says that we must ask ourselves that we need to address. Mm -hmm. So it's a very large, you know, it's kind of hard to like sit down and talk about one thing because there's so many forces at play, Mm -hmm. you know, and you don't want what you don't want. I mean, one thing they say in business, my business is in an incubator at the new museum oh, called yes, New Inc. Yeah, sorry. You know, so, you know, we're in an aesthetic incubator yeah. sponsored by a museum, but uh-huh. yet we have tutorials by famous people in business that come in and mentor us. Uh-huh. And one of the things you never want is for someone to say no uh-huh. to what you're offering. Uh-huh. And that's reverberates between, you know, like you don't want to box it in only in a museum or a gallery mm-hmm. you want it to expand and and if you keep the dialogue going mm-hmm. then more can happen yeah. but if the customer says no i don't want it that's go away that's the end of it so you have to keep the conversation fluid and moving and at some point if you do this really well you'll engage the person and they'll understand better maybe what you're doing in terms of your or your business practices mm-hmm. so there's no Separation. I mean, that's why Oldenburg did store days, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like he made a store and he made objects and he sold them in the store. These mm-hmm. pop objects of hamburgers and ladies' stockings and shoes and all the stuff that he mm-hmm. did. So I think that the notion of this interconnectedness is really something that, for me, it's really important to keep alive. I think it's very fascinating, this whole world, and as I, being able to see it in, in your wonderful studio and how you are not, you know, putting up borders. Some in the art world want to, how do you say, limit access. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't even have a separation between my living and my yeah. studio. I mean, it's yeah. just, I'm in it. That's what I love, just to be in it. Yeah, and for you, finally, the the importance of arts and the humanities and how they may u- be used as vehicles to educate and inspire. Yeah, it's about connecting people. I mean, yeah. Matisse understood that. I mean, most artists understand it's about making a connection. Mm-hmm. So how, how big can you make that connection? I think that's the exciting possibility. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Steve Miller, for you, all, all you've done for using your art to, to increase our understanding. And you've uh, definitely inspired me, and I look forward to sharing it with our participating students and inviting their creative responses. Uh, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thanks for asking. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was myself, Wills Ladd. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, Just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.